welcome to our 32nd Set the Month in Motion monthly podcast. Still can't believe we're up to 32. And Forum, produced in partnership with the City of Fremantle's Building Business Capacity Program. My name is Denisha Quinlan and I'm the CEO of the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce. I would like to start today by acknowledging the traditional owners on the land on which we gather, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and their new leaders emerging. COVID continues to challenge our workplaces and workforces in such a myriad of different ways. We have oscillated between desperate skill shortages in our hospitality and aged care sectors to finding now our hospitality businesses facing a 30 to 40% reduction in turnover and not knowing when their staffing levels will return to normal. We're still seeing desperate shortages in aged care, marine, food and logistics. And also on the horizon, it appears we will be facing a mass resignation and turnover in the not so distant future. The National Australia Bank, NAB, estimates one in five Australians will quit their job and have quit their job in the last year. They found the highest turnover was in the general unskilled population from parking attendants to cleaners to fruit pickers and labouring assistants. These individuals are not being driven by salary, rather they are looking for better work-life balance and employment that means they can follow their dreams a little more. And so the study has reported. Connections, meaningful work and opportunity are becoming key drivers across all sectors. We have faced unprecedented changes in our world and that is being reflected in our workplaces. Joining me on today's panel are three leaders across a diverse range of industry sectors to discuss what they are seeing in the market and some creative ways that they are managing some of these challenges. Also on the panel is the lovely Rosie from local jobs program Perth South, which is a federal government initiative looking to provide more local jobs to local people. So first up on my panel is Michael May, General Manager of Geraldton Fishermen's Cooperative. Michael has grown up in a fishing family at the Abrolhos Islands and has been involved with the Geraldton Fishermen's Co-op across almost two generations. He, joins, he joined the GFC in 2017 as a safety manager, bringing his skills and knowledge acquired from his work in the mining sector and resource sector to advance GFC's occupational health and safety framework and a commitment to employee safety. He joined the executive team in 2020 and now leads a team looking at risk and governance, occupational health and safety, people services, ICT, quality assurance and corporate affairs. You have had some huge challenges in the sector over the last few years, Michael. And um, we've had, uh, we at the Chamber have a Marine and Engineering Committee made up of a number of industries very similar to the GFC. And we've been talking a lot about the changing landscape in the marine sector. And in particular, attracting job seekers into what is such a diverse and rich and, and wonderfully fresh ocean-related career. Um, but we've still got so far to go in terms of attracting people into the sector. From your perspective, how do you see that changing landscape and what are the, some of the things that you've seen that are enabling, I guess, better traction um, into this incredibly important industry for our future? Thanks for that really nice intro, Denisha. Um, yeah, look, I think the going back to sort of the start of when COVID first hit um, and, you know, we were impacted quite early on mm. in, in that um, and, you know, what, what became apparent to us really quickly was that there were some fundamental changes in the business environment 
Um, and, and sort of straight away we, we realised that that meant we had to make some fundamental changes in the way that we operated, mm. um, all the way from, um, you know, the way we targeted our customers but also the way, like you say, you know, people, um, that there's the great resignation that everyone's talking about. There was, uh, you know, borders closed so there wasn't access to backpackers. So mm. there was a massive shift um, and I think the, the key thing for us at, at that time um, was going slow to go fast, if, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. So we stopped and rather than making a whole bunch of reactive changes, we actually undertook a, a sort of a whole review of how we operated as a business, got right back to our fundamental principles of a cooperative, um, you know, which include things like engaging with the community and just realising that the same old tricks weren't going to work anymore. Um, and that we really had to um, take a take a new approach, um, and so that you know from early on in 2020, sort of right through to now, we've been working through those changes, as you say, to um, look at how we could attract people into into the industry, um, but also how we could retain them, because uh, mm. it's one thing to get someone through the door, but then to you know retain a, a, and develop and build them within your team um, is another whole challenge altogether. And I guess convert some of those challenges into opportunities and some of the, what we're just hearing in terms of where people are seeking new work, you know, the, the ocean industries provide a huge benefit for life balance and, and being part of, you know, nature and a lot of the things that people are looking for. Is that part of what you've tried to attract? Yeah, so we, so we don't get involved so much with the fishing activities. Mm. Our members um, are sort of look after their own part of their business there. What we mainly focus on is the... Um, supply chain logistics and marketing That's for the right. product. But I, I think, you know, in terms of targeting people to, to sort of become involved in the industry, something that we realised when we took a look at our at the makeup of our workforce was that we were heavily reliant on uh, backpackers mm -hmm. and, and sort of, you know, people that might be – because we're very seasonal. Yeah, so course. people would come in, work for a couple of months and then sort of move on. And our turnover rate for casual staff was something around 70% each year. So we were recruiting and onboarding – you know, 200 people every year Gosh, to fill that huge. to fill that gap. Yeah, yeah. And then the second thing we noticed was that, you know, as a cooperative, one of our core principles is engagement with community, but we were doing a really bad job at engaging with the local community, particularly groups uh, like the Indigenous community. Mm. Um, so when I came into the role in shared services, um, I think we had, you know, less than 1% um, Indigenous engagement with our, with our workforce. Yeah. And in some parts of the business now, that's up to 20%. So, for instance, up in Geraldton, we've reached out to some of the local community groups and said, hey, you know, we, we want workers. We're willing to give anyone a shot. We'll support that's you through fantastic. it. And we've just seen a huge response. And, you know, as someone growing up in those communities and, and, and having friends among the community, it's just awesome. Now you walk into the factory and you see a workforce that's actually more reflective of the community that we operate in. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 been that, that for me probably that's been the biggest win is actually engaging the community in that way. And it right comes back to that word as you said cooperative. You know you you manage a cooperative a whole lot of um, you know different businesses and fleets and that's now reflected in in all of the processing right through from where to go. It's a really reassuring story. And I'd love to come back a little bit about how you managed to really get out into the community and start to reflect that brand um, because you're right. You know we are sometimes I think when we look at employment strategies we kind of forget that our employment draw comes from a community of people around us and, and sometimes making that match makes so much more sense. We sometimes get a little interruption from the garbage truck, but Chris does an amazing job of ensuring that we can all be heard through it, so we'll just keep soldiering on. Um, next on my, um, my panel, I have Dan Pizzino um, from LGC Traffic Management. 
Dan has been in or around traffic management Australia in Australia since 2016. Um, you're currently the Health, Safety and Environment Manager of LGC Traffic Management and you've previously worked in safety and leadership and management system roles in commercial and industrial and infrastructure organisations. In the last 10 months at LGC, Dan has been responsible for increasing the size of the workforce in the current labour shortages um, across the industry. And we just heard in my introduction, you know, in an industry that we're seeing a lot of movement and a lot of movement, I'm sure, will continue. Dan, can you talk us through this work and what you've done to increase the size of your workforce and how you're navigating the current labour challenge? Thanks for that, Tanisha. Um, so comparing where we are at LGC right now, um, I've been with LGC for 10 months and then I was out of the industry for about it, uh, 18 months or so and then before that was with a, a national traffic management organisation. So comparing them is really, really interesting as to what's happened in that little off period. Um, so during that time out of the, well, not directly in the industry was where COVID came up. So before that, the Perth market was predominantly... Um, larger, older traffic management businesses, which have been around since before, say, 2007 or so, um, you have pretty stable workforces. They're almost all casual in the Perth market. However, your shifts, you know, in summer, there'd be heaps of shifts going on. In winter, they would dip because it rains, you can't build roads and that sort of thing. So watching that market in that three-year window there, which is pretty similar nationally, um, and then seeing what's happened in the last year or so, um, during that time, COVID's effects been, you know, obviously um, pretty hard on the industry, but also we're in a company that's having rapid growth right now. So, uh, you know, we're a little bit different at LGC. Um, because of all the infrastructure spend at the start of, from the start of COVID, it feels like we probably need twice as many traffic controllers on Perth Metro roads in that last couple of years. So that's really, really been hard and personal with a lot more traffic controllers on our roads in recent yep. times. Yep. It's like every time yeah. you turn a corner, oh, here we are again, <laughs> especially right. just down the road here. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And also because, um, you know, that safety understanding is getting to be better ingrained. So whereas, you know, in days gone by, you might have been able to get away with construction workers chucking out a couple of cones. Mm. You know, main roads is getting very, very specific. We have probably the best safety regime in Western Australia. Um, so it's very hard to get away without having proper traffic management mm. to the proper standards. So, yeah, that's also putting that strain out there and there's just an absolute labour shortage in the market yeah. for a growing company. It makes it pretty hard, of course. And it's tough work, isn't it? You know, it's not work that everybody rushes to go, I just can't wait to stand in the sun for 12 hours and, you know, navigate yep. traffic. How do you attract and retain a workforce in such a difficult condition like that? Yeah, it's it's um it's a hard one because um it's it's easy to underestimate you know what traffic management is. You need mm. to do a three day course, which is nationally recognised training, um, just to start out. And you don't really learn how to do it in that. You actually learn when you're on the job and you yeah. get rotated around different jobs. So how we get people in has been, um, I think we've been doing very well at it at LGC. I think the number one thing you've got to do is take care of your staff. It's a market where um, staff aren't always the most taken care of, I think, in our industry. So I think our number one trick has actually been just to look after them better than yeah. most of our competitors. Um, so retention-wise, I dare say we're doing better um, than most companies around because they're casual and the rates can get so low in this industry, it's easy to uh, kind of 
you know, take advantage a bit. So not doing that, putting out a good word. And the next thing is forming the right relationships to um, get people in the door. Yes. So um, predominantly we're seeing that job active schemes and DES schemes um, from the government are the absolute best. I know that there's subsidies attached, but in our recruiting, I don't really worry too much about that. It's about making the relationships so that the right candidates are screened so that mm. you're not underestimating what a traffic controller has to be capable of. You know, they have to uh, withstand absolute extremes of weather. Yeah. They have to be able to turn up on a day's notice to a shift and be reliable. Um, you have to be able to de-escalate situations because road users, when they're in a hurry, there's this minority that, you know, they just need to be somewhere and mm -hmm. you have to help de-escalate that person. Um, so, yeah, there's actually quite a bit required of traffic controllers and physical fitness, you need to be able to walk on uneven ground, which is also, I think, vastly underestimated people humans aren't really built for doing it these days um so yeah yeah i often think if someone filmed me walking along a road it's so embarrassing the ankle goes every now and again and that's yeah, right that's right yeah, yeah absolutely and that has consequences for the organization some couple of really good themes i'd love to explore on further in the conversation just around one that idea of a, a little bit like what michael was saying that idea of building a community within your workforce and how you retain because i do think we often spend a lot of attention on the entry in, I, I heard a great quote the other day that said, you know, you need to spend a long time getting the right person into the job, but then you can't just leave them. And if they're not the right person, you either need to get them out because that has such a huge impact on the team that you've got as well yep. and that you're building. So yep. we'll come back to that one. And the other one is those relationships and the, the variety, and I know Rosie's quite keen to talk about that as well, the variety of different programs that are out there that for many of our employees, particularly locally in Fremantle, we are part of the community in a very similar way to what you said, Michael, and we do need to think about what relationships we need and where we can get that draw from. So thanks so much for that introduction, Dan. Thanks. Next on my list is Jessie, um, who has a really interesting um, background. Jessie Sharp is responsible for recruitment, HR and community engagement for Intertech. Um, particularly specific projects with heavy industry. Jessie was born and raised in the Swan Valley in WA and has spent a lot of her career teaching Indigenous communities and working throughout Southeast Asia in oil and gas projects. She is truly passionate about people and you're obviously in the right line of work for that, diversity and equality, to understanding why and making the who a better and complete package. To Jessie, it's not about training on the weaknesses, it's about building a team on the strengths. And we often have that conversation internally at the chamber, Jessie, just no one comes as a complete and perfect package, do they? They've, every one of us has got really strong strengths and weaknesses. And part of the recruitment process is identifying those so that you can put someone into the right spot and develop them appropriately. We've talked a little bit about building and maintaining teams, which is as an important part of the recruitment process is actually um, getting them in the door in the first place, Jesse. Some big challenges in doing that at the moment. Um, what advice would you give those recruiting and maintaining teams within their workplaces and projects at the moment? Loaded question. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's definitely a challenge, um, of course, for every industry. Um, uh, it's already been mentioned as well around networks and you know, building your networks, building uh, your contacts. There's so many different areas that you need to, I guess, keep spinning those plates. So if I think about the, you know, the old circus trick where you have a, a stick and a plate, you, you know, you start with your internal, you have your external, you use networks, you, you have to keep all of those things going. If you falter on those key engagements, 
your plate will drop and you, you break it. So the consistency is key. Mm. Um, so some of those things have been mentioned already around, you know, Indigenous engagement, um, tapping into local communities and not just local communities where you're working but outside and where you might grow. Um, mm. uh, you know, that's the right thing to do. Um, the job active providers that we've been utilising have been key to our recruitment strategies. So locally in WA, we have a, a major lab um, in Maddington. There's about 500 employees there um, and we've grown significantly. Um, and then we have about 150 people out on mine site. So we're, we're offering quite a range of opportunity, um, you know, to come in at an entry level, to move through the ranks, um, looking at traineeship pathways. So Recruitment from external is, is a key part, but then, you know, looking after your current employees is also essential. So you can't just keep recruiting external and have people leave. It's it's not it's not a good business model. Mm. Um, so really looking at, yeah, how, how do you know what your people want and having that conversation. So you, we're really focusing and, and I guess most businesses are focusing on what is that opportunity that the person wants to stay? So instead of finding the opportunity externally, offer it internally. Mm. Um, and if you can't, have a conversation and make sure they're a good lever. So if they are going to help them through their next their, their next career path. So, you know, within WA, we've, we've got around about, you get about 700, 800 employees and it is hard to do that for every single person mm -hmm. but that just means, you know, just like safety is everyone's responsibility, HR is as well. Mm. Um, that human resource contact is essential. Our, our leaders, our supervisors, your peers, have those conversations and, and make sure you add the human element to, to, to the workforce. Um, we don't have a full robotic team um you know that's not that that's the the way of the future but we'll still need people to operate those and it, yeah developing our people is essential mm. um, what we really want to be is is our own agency we, we want to have a conversation and say if this isn't working come to us mm. and we'll find a different pathway mm. um, and whether that's within the business or external ideally within so we can reta retain but having honest conversations is essential um, and then the networks externally, if you can't build on that internally, being able to refer them to someone where they'll hit their career goals, mm. that, that, that's the bigger picture that will help everybody. And that's what we've noticed, I think, more and more, even within the chamber, you know, having some of those great agencies like At Work and APM as part of our membership base, as well as, you know, really strong HR practitioners. It does help businesses of all sizes just look a little bit more creatively at their external relationships. And I liked your analogy of robotic because sometimes with recruitment, we do almost apply that robotic system, don't we? Put an ad on Seek, wait and see what we got. We line everybody up, go, yep, you're right, yeah. and, and pull them in. And I think... If I look back on my career, the most successful um, employment and engagement strategies have come from the community in which we operate Absolutely. and people that you are mixing with and part of. And even in our own team, I think I look around and I think most of our team have come through that kind of network as well. So those networks, those relationships. And I really liked what you also said about, again, I guess it's playing to people's strengths, but if they're in a role, they might just be in the wrong role, but yeah. they still have huge strengths and an ability to contribute to your organisation in another way. And being creative in that thinking um, is a way to retain people in many ways. We, we all know that there's two facets of, a, of any role. There's the behavioural element and there's the performance element. Mm. And if you're having those conversations with your people and you know that performance-wise they're hitting the mark, behaviour-wise there's something amiss. So you, you focus on that and what, what isn't working in that behavioural element. Are they in the wrong role? Are they not being satisfied? If, if either of those performance or behavioural um, concepts are amiss, they'll leave. 
They'll find mm. something. They'll find that elsewhere. That's the human element. We all will do that. Yeah. So how do we offer that really specific support to that one individual employee so they can be the best employee they want to be? And you can only do that with conversation. Absolutely. And I think in these current times too, the amount of external pressure and, you know, we, t- we talked in the introduction about the great resignation, you know, some of that's coming from external drivers as well. So it's understanding what those external drivers are that may be impacting that behaviour and performance, as you've so rightly said, Jesse. Rosie. Rosie um, Hegarty is facilitator of the local jobs program, Perth South. Rosie has worked in the employment industry for 20 years. Uh, She is an experienced recruiter, spent nearly a decade in the online jobs classified with Irish Jobs, Scottish Jobs and Seek.com. That's quite a line up there, Rosie, working closely with employers to assist with their attraction and retention strategies. Rosie has run her own business, assisting job seekers with resumes, interview skills and is now the employment facilitator, as I mentioned, uh, to assist local employers, engage local employees. Rosie, we've had lots of chats over the last couple of years just around how important it is for local employers and in many ways echoes what Michael was saying about how do we use the pool of great local people we have around us and get the most out of that pool. Um, How does the recruitment process affect job seeker attraction, particularly locally, and what advice would you give employers, Rosie, to trying to attract staff at the moment in the current market? Okay, so I think... um Firstly, thank you, Denisha, for having us and um, for having me. I think I just wanted to cap on a lot of what has already been mentioned in terms of some of the themes around how to not only attract into your business, but really look at who's currently in your business and really focusing on that retention strategy and what it is that is your point of difference as an organisation. Because if you're going out to market to try and attract, I think it's really important to understand what your EVP is as a business and what your brand represents and actually living and breathing that. And that will then come out when you're putting an ad up on Seek, for example. Rather than having a laundry list of you must have X, Y and Z, it's about as a business, this is what we can offer you as a job seeker and this is why we want you. Are you this? Yeah, great. Well, come along the journey with us. Um, Throughout the years that I've worked, obviously, with online classifieds and as a recruiter and all that sort of thing, I think one of the things that I've noticed from um, employers is the speed to react. Mm. So sometimes what happens is you have a process that's been set up when we've been in a buoyant market where we've had lots and lots of applications coming through and you don't want lots of applications. So you set up hurdles as part of your application process to prevent people from coming in. Mm. But then you forget to change it. We're now in the most candidate type market possible. So as a job seeker, if I have five different businesses that I can apply to, I'll apply to the one that has the least hurdles. Can I just flick you a resume? Do I not even have to do a resume? Can I just come and meet you Mm. at a recruitment day or at a meet and employer event? So it's really about deconstructing perhaps how you've always done business, as as again, um, it has been sort of mentioned already, Um, and looking at um, the process itself. So what I've often suggested over the years is put yourself through your own application process. Set up a, uh, you know, set up an email address set up a a fake resume and actually go through the process and you'll quickly identify where the gaps are. Does it take two weeks for someone to respond to you? Do you actually respond to all of your 
candidates who apply because that's their touch with your brand initially. Mm. Do you have an automated email to say we'll only get in contact with successful applicants or is there crickets? Mm. And unfortunately, there's lots often more crickets than not. Do you respond to every applicant that comes in to say, hey, we're going to candidate pull you? Even though you're not right right now, you might be in six months' time when you've gone out and got some experience. So it's really about sort of looking holistically at future-proofing and forward-planning your recruitment process mm. to react to the way that the current market is. Um, outside of that, I suppose, what I'm starting to see is that businesses are no longer saying, you must have this as a skill set to come in. It might be more about, as a business, we need X, Y, and Z skills. Within our current pool of people working, who has the potential to be upskilled? Let's create an entry-level pathway because we know it's easy to get entry-level people and we nurture and train those people and we bring them in on cultural fit. We don't just bring them in because they've got the right skills because they might not have the skills but you can train them up. And that cultural fit just means that they will be engaged in your business because you're aligned from the start. Mm. And as you said before, you know, one bad apple will completely ruin the apple cart. But if you bring in the right cultural fit to begin with, then you'll have a much more engaged and profitable business. And in many ways, that right fit and that right cultural fit directly links into what Jesse was saying earlier about performance and behaviour because if you've got someone that fits the culture that's in there, they're much more likely to behave in appropriate ways and to perform as well, Rosie. Some really good points. Yeah, I'd love yeah, to hear sorry, that, Mark. Yeah. touch on something Rosie just said. Well, in fact, everything Rosie just said <laughs> because um, something I forgot to mention before was that we actually reached out to Rosie's team when we were doing our recruitment mm. drive and Rosie gave us all of that very good advice and we put it into practice and you know, I have to say, I think in our Perth Metro um, uh, employment pool, about 70% of our candidates have come through the Job Active programs mm. um, and that was largely doing, you know, when we did the Job Expo where yeah, we actually said to yeah. um, uh, the job seekers, you know, don't apply online, come and meet us and we'll yeah. tell you what the company's like. We'll talk, And that was incredible. We had... 120 people rock up. Yeah. We booked a room for 50 people and <laughs> we only had tea and coffee for Marion 50 people. downstairs kept going, there's more coming, there's more coming, there's more coming. <laughs> I felt coming. terrible. Felt terrible but, um, but, it was but the atmosphere was wonderful yeah. and it actually gave those people in the room a sense that I'm coming to work for an organisation that's made up of people yep. and I can see them and I can touch them and the leaders of the organisation care enough about me that they're standing in a room to meet me. I thought it was exceptional. 100%. Look, and, and I've got to be honest, we were a bit sceptical at first about what kind of success we would have in, in, in doing that um, because you hear a lot of this stuff and it can just sound like good theoretical advice but when you actually put it into practice we were blown away by the response that we got and even simple things like you know Rosie mentioned um, in the application process removing the hurdles we had a look at our recruitment process and it was horrendous you had to supply 15 different types of documents you had to complete three inductions you had to do all this stuff before you even got in the door yeah. and we just said no one's going to do this no. you know people are going to look at this and say why am I going to go through this when I can walk into a job somewhere else and get started straight away. So we actually cut down our recruitment and onboarding process by something like 60% in terms of the job steps they had to work through and the information they had to provide. We still met all of our legal obligations, of course, yeah. but we, we sort of took those barriers out from the application process and then we just did a more thorough induction and onboarding process when they'd actually started with us. to sort of, And it was, it was more personable too because we're having those conversations face-to-face -face rather than just being 
on, on a screen. So, yeah, Rosie, I, I really appreciate that advice and the help mm. you gave us then because it was it was fantastic and it, it, it really, really works. great to hear. And I think it's a really nice point you also make about the fact that the onboarding process is almost still part of that recruitment process because it is the time where you have that flexibility to get to know the candidates that you've just brought into the organisation introduce them into your brand and culture. But it's also a time that's a real lifetime to sort of test and trial and make sure that person's right. You don't have to do all of that, you know, as you're getting them in the door as well. That's a really good point. Um, interested about the cultural and obviously two, three really different organisations here in different industries. Do you set out to say, this is the sort of person that I want in terms of cultural and brand fit? And how do you go about that? And I might just run down the, the employers if we do that. So part of our the um, uh, strategic kind of review that, that I mentioned before was getting back and, and we got, um, we, we had a big workshop with um, our board of directors who include some of our fishermen members, our executive management team, but also staff across the business. And we went right back to the principles of saying, who are we as a business? What do we actually stand for? What's our purpose? What's our mission? What are our values? What are the things that we truly believe in? Um, because it's easy to have, you know, sort of values that you plaster up on the wall mm. and it's, you know, safety and quality and respect and all the usual sort of jargon. But when you actually take the time to step back and say, well, what do we actually believe in? Mm. It's a really interesting conversation. And, 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 and then you can start challenging yourself on well, which of those values do we actually live and breathe in the organisation? And what are our employees on the floor telling us about those those values? Mm. And it was a really interesting um, process for us to work work through. And and that's where we kind of uh, really first highlighted that the community um, you know principle that we need to live as a co-op. We just weren't we weren't living. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think in in in, in crafting that um, uh, that message to your staff, you need to get your current staff involved and you mm. need to be really willing to have an open conversation with them about, you know, who are we as a business and what do we do? And until you do that, you, you can't actually communicate to new people coming on board what the values are because you can, like I say, you can put some nice flashy corporate sort of slogans up on the wall, but you won't know what they're experiencing until you speak to your staff. And so, so through that, um, you know, we have, we've developed a, a much more, personable message for our for our new staff coming on um, and and it, it I think we've had a lot more success because it it actually resonates with them you know when they walk through the door what we're telling them is what they're actually saying mm. and that congruence isn't it it's yeah. very much like really branding principles externally you know there's no point in having some great marketing campaign externally if there's no congruence with what you're actually delivering and I think that's the same thing with internally it's got to really carry through yeah 100 percent um Dan, I guess in terms of some of the things we're talking about, your organisational brand lives on the road every day. It's a very public brand yes. that people see yes. and touch and feel. How do you, did, do you do something similar to what Michael did in terms of establishing the brand values and then recruiting people to fit that kind of community or have you kind of evolved over time and growth? I'd say it's more of the evolution. Um, so everything in our business comes from the mind of our managing director and he's got some um, very specific ideas. One of them drew me into the business. So I've, I've left traffic management for a while and um, a recruiter got me and said, hey, it's a traffic management business that's looking at you. And um, I thought I'd never go back to the industry. But anyway, I went in for the job interview with my managing director um, because what really got me about our business is we've got all these beautiful Toyota Hiluxes on the roads and it's really kind of odd. In our kind of market, you see a lot of traffic management uh, fleets with, you know, 
busted old vehicles, um, you know, trying to get great walls on the roads and things like that. And LGC from the outside, all I saw was shiny, good-looking, new Hiluxes. And I thought, you know, that's really weird because it's such a cutthroat market. Um, and that was that's kind of indicative of the way that Max portrays the business. Mm. So he turns over those Hiluxes every four years or so. Um, and I just claim we've got a few Tritons in the fleet because you just can't get Hiluxes <laughs> at the moment. Um, and we know. We see them when they're sitting on the port just out the road. Yeah, yeah, right. and, and they're shiny and white yeah, as well. Yeah. But um, his whole mentality around our business is that we're that, you know, large um, trusted government supplier. We do a lot of infrastructure. We don't do so many construction projects that wind down and then you lose mm. people at the end of that. We like that continuity for our people but yeah from the outside a lot of that brand image is how he wants everything you know to be shaped within the yeah. business and a Hilux I know my son would be signing up if he had a really nice Hilux parked out <laughs> yeah. the front he still talks about the time that I got to drive from work and the best Hilux he's ever been in so you know yeah. that's part of the attraction strategy as well isn't it it's also yeah. knowing your market and if you're in traffic yeah. you're clearly going to be into roads and cars and yeah. all sorts of things and having that reflect on your brand is is really really important I mean we we're sort of joking in a way but you know it's public, those beautiful yeah. shiny cars. You've yeah. got a mar workforce that is working and building roads. It makes sense for every touch point of that brand to echo what you want from your people. And you do want people that like cars because they're standing there looking at them all day. Hey, ab absolutely, yeah. I, th I think it's just indicative of how he wants to portray yeah. the higher quality end of yes. business in the uh, market, yeah. I love it. I really love it. I think it's a great practical example and it, yeah. I think it applies to all of our businesses just in really different ways about finding the Hilux in our business. <laughs> Bright, shiny ones. Yeah. Jesse, do you have anything you wanted to add? Because obviously in the lab, again, very different demographic of employees. How do you, you go about getting that cultural fit right and that brand and that community that you spoke of but getting the right people through the door. It's very, I guess, very similar themes. Again, it, it's you know, what are you putting out to the market and how do you engage or and attract? So what's what's the draw-in factor? Um, so we've been lucky enough to have um, approval and we've since built a state-of-the-art laboratory. So the footprint of it is the size of the MCG. It's based in WA, so it's, it's just massive. So then that tells our current employee base that we're here to stay, mm. that there's long-term options. It tells our clients that. So the stability factor is there, but it's also shiny and new and fun. Um, so we've done some family days um, where yeah, employees are able to bring their 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 kids in and their their partners, um, uncles, aunties, the, the lot, um, and you know safely show them around the lab, show them the robots that we have there, um, and really get excited. Um, if if we're excited as employees and managers, our people are excited, their families are excited. That rallies references. Mm. That rallies talking about Intertech. That that brands us from and it's a you know it's a cost free option. Mm. It, it's and the excitement stays, it comes back to that feel factor. How does it make you feel? So if we're proud of our employees for doing that, our employees are proud of the business, they're, they're branding and, and, and mm. they're self-promoting. Um, they want to be part of the story. So, mm. it, you know, it, similar to, you know, a Hilux, we've got a lab and, and we want to show it off. So our recruitment strategies have been engaging with universities and saying, just come have a look. There's no commitment. You don't have to join us. We're not saying you need to, you know, join us for 20 years. Come have a look at a lab. You use labs in a uni. 
come and see if that translates to what we do and come and ask questions to our experts. And, and that 1970s, yeah, that's the university, look at what we've actually got, yeah. Well, and true. I mean, we, the, the labs we had before were, yeah, they were a collective. We had sort of seven different labs around um, the metro area. Um, now we're all under one roof, so we can show the ecotox lab. We can show fish. We can show, um, you know, all the water treatments and marine. And then on the other side, we've got, you know, iron ore and, and minerals and huge crushes and the diversity and the options are very visible. Mm. Um, it is a bit tougher to show people around the lab during COVID time. So obviously that, you know, number one as well is that safety to our employees and, the sustainability of their role. Like we, we keep that very, um, you know, locked down during these times so that our employees can keep working. So all of those things are thought ahead for the safety and ongoing operations, that business continuity. Mm. Um, but it's it's what options and how do we engage with people? How do we keep the conversation going? How do we promote it? Mm. Um, you know, linking in with our job partners um, and job active and different communities. I mean, Soldier On is a, a new company for us to be working with and just another diverse um, business that mm. where do you find people and how do you talk to people about opportunities? It might not be with Intertech, but if I talk to someone, I think, oh, God, okay, where where do I know someone that this person might have a great opportunity with? So it, it's a collective. If we're all helping each other, yeah. we'll get through this current state. Absolutely. And I, a couple of things spring to mind on that. And, Rosie, I'd be really interested in your perspective on this. Um, I think one of the things that COVID's done and being in lockdown has forced us to look locally. I think as, as West Australians, we are fairly, often have felt very isolated and looked to elsewhere and then applies to our employee base as well. You know, where can I attract the talent from overseas? Where can I attract the talent from interstate? And we've had to really look locally and then where are those people? Where are the clusters of those people that I can actually tap into and find? And I think, Jess, you've highlighted some really good points there around universities, around where the training institutions are that your people come from and getting those relationships in early. Um, and also the, the different providers from soldiering on, as we mentioned, through to At Work and AMP and others. Rosie, are you seeing that? Are you seeing, particularly given, I guess, the local jobs network is a big part of that, how do you see those relationships and the diversity of those relationships locally and are you seeing a much greater drive into that local market? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, look, previously before I even joined the local jobs program, I didn't even know there was this whole pool of potential applicants called Job Active that you mm. could source from government um, sort of funded um, communities. And the conversation that I have with employers is now, who's your job active partner? Mm. And more often than not, they're like, sorry, what is that? I didn't mm. even know that that existed. So I think what we're starting to see is that they're definitely, I mean, from our, you know, from our panel here, um, that they have looked beyond, um, you know, traditional applicant pools of just, you know, popping an ad up or, or whatever that um, sort of has looked like in the past. And they're starting to really look at, as they've said, partnerships and relationships with providers um, who do have diversity of um, people that may have hit the unemployment um, sort of landscape because of COVID. We had a whole bunch of people that um, had never been unemployed and suddenly had to kind of join Centrelink and join um, a job active. Um, and our program was developed in response to that um, because we wanted to really upskill and retrain people to get them back into work quite mm. quickly. Um, fast forward WA two years later, we're now really working with um, perhaps longer unemployed um, people who 
absolutely can add so much value to an organisation, as I'm sure the guys will attest to. Um, and it's really about understanding that they may have a few barriers, they might need a little bit more additional coaching and, and um, some, you know, training and skilling, but they can absolutely help bridge, um, bridge the gap. Mm. Um, and when you're talking about sort of, you know, looking at... Um, at the end of training and um, we have some, you know, there's some micro-credential training courses that are out there where employers can sit at the end to, to engage. There's one in aged care, there's one in civil, there's one in um, sort of construction and, and many more. Um, it's really about, you know, looking at where are the fish and fish for those fish mm -hmm. and understanding, I think it comes back to understanding, well, who are those fish mm -hmm. or, you know, what is it that we actually want and need um, and when you can understand that then you can start to go further afield to, uh, to, to sort of look at where they might be mm, um, really and a lot of it comes back to the barriers as well so mitigating those barriers if you've always as a business required a police check why mm. yeah and when you look at your absolute non-negotiables I'd ask you again why mm. yeah and once you and can open that up, perhaps, that can... applies as much to professional, high-end, you know, employee, university graduates, right through the spectrum of some of the roles that we've also been talking about in terms of, you know, even what are perceived to be unskilled roles still require that skill and background. But what is it that you really need? And I think we're seeing that movement in all fields at the moment, you know, whether you're a top-end lawyer or you're a mining engineer or you're working, you know, in traffic, there's a sense of what else is out there in the world. Am I in the best place that I can be and what do I want from my workforce? And if, as an employer, you can articulate what you offer in the workplace, you're much more likely to then be able to pull those. And if you've got the relationships so that when people are moving around that you can pull those people in closer to you, I imagine it's really, really important. Yeah, and I think um, if I can just also mention flexibility. Mm. So job sharing. Why can't people job share? Mm. If you're sourcing because then mums. you spend half your life wondering who's sitting at the desk, where they are, mm -hmm. what they're doing, why there's no one there today. No, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, from an employer perspective, having lived part-time work and job share work, it is really, really tough on a daily basis. And I'm sure you can testify to that as well. I might actually get that perspective on that because there is a lot of talk about flexibility and I always, I know it's so important and I love to live flexibility, but it does have its downsides, doesn't it? Look, it, it does, but I think our biggest, so we offer um, flexible working arrangements for all of our permanent staff. Yes. Obviously the staff in the factories um, can't, pack crayfish at home so they have <laughs> to come right. in but all the rest of our team we we give them that flexibility to say you know if you need to work from home um you know a couple of days a week because you've got to look after the kids or if you need to duck off at three o'clock to pick them up and drop them home and work from home for the rest of the afternoon we, we, we offer that flexibility and that was something that we we didn't do pre-covid yeah. um but of course when we had the uh you know the lockdowns and it was everyone had to work from home we really quickly realized that um you know, our staff were still productive and in some cases um, they were working more and we had to tell them to, you know, I could see my team hadn't clocked off at five o'clock and I'd say, hey, come on, yeah. time to knock off. And it comes down to trust. Mm. So, you know, if, if you don't have the trust in your team to work at home unsupervised, you know, it's not like you're standing there over their shoulder the whole time when they're at work either. Yeah. So there's this kind of funny perception that, 
just because you can't see what someone's doing, they're not they're not doing anything. That's right. Um, and we've just had to say to our teams, look, we trust that you're going to do the right thing. We're going to give you that flexibility. Of course, if they abuse that trust, um, we you know we sort of pull them back into line yeah. a bit. Um, but we've found, I mean, we've just been really fortunate um, in offering that uh, flexibility. We managed to um, onboard a, a new uh, people services manager, HR manager, um, from the mining sector. And, you know, she was, um, she's fantastic. She comes with, you know, 10 years of experience and so much better at people services than I am. I think, Rosie, you've dealt with Belinda. She's she's fantastic. Um, and, and, you know, and, and the whole reason we got her across was because we could say, yeah, we offer that flexible work. That's she's right. got two young kids. She likes to be able to work from home a couple of days a week when they're not at school. And and I tell you, the quality and quantity of work that she is is producing um, is is just is just incredible. So, so yeah, I, I, I'm a firm believer in that flexibility. I think it's really and worthwhile. There's a couple of things that really struck me as you, you were talking also, Michael, is that part of the recruitment process is setting expectations as well, isn't it? And if in our instance, if you're stamping export documents and we say our export desk is open from nine to five, you we have to have someone at that desk between nine to five. Mm -hmm. If you're packing crayfish, you absolutely have to have someone there physically packing the crayfish. If there is flexibility in the role, then be open to it. But I think setting those expectations is so important. And if it is flexible, it does mean then that you're not working nine to five. You might be doing seven till four one day and then you might be doing, you know, 10 till seven the next day. Flexibility means flexibility. And I think it's really important for all of us as employers. And likewise for Dan, I can imagine you can't have flexible workforce when you're doing traffic management. So it's really setting those expectations right, isn't it? Absolutely. So in the office, it's a little bit different, but yeah. the you know predominantly it's the traffic management workforce on the road. And they really need to do whatever shift it is that the client hands us. You know, mm. when they're doing that construction work or that maintenance work, of course, we need that traffic management to be in place for that to happen. Yeah. And when you're employing someone, it's no point having that conversation once you've actually got them on board and they're currently on site and then they go, oh, I didn't know I had to work, you know, 7 till 11. That wasn't part of what I signed up for. So whether it's the hours and flexibility, whether it's what you're actually doing, being really clear in that recruitment process about what the job entails and how you're actually going to get someone in there. How do you go about that, Jesse? Yeah, there's operationally there's some roles that don't have a lot of flexibility in that position. So if we, you know if we have a 200 people sample prep and we have three shifts and they're rotating shifts and we have you know the numbers coming in and the numbers going out, but then other options within the business might offer that flexibility. Yeah. So you know we're talking a lot from an employer perspective, but if if I flick to being an employee as well, then if something's not hitting the mark for me, I approach my manager. And it's my responsibility to lead my career. If I don't know what to say, that's okay. But at least say something's not right. Can I have a chat mm -hmm. and reach out? So, you know, across, you know, there's only so many managers to employees, of course, and there's only so many people who can make the change for you as an individual. But at least put yourself out there and have a conversation. Um, there's there's no, no better feeling than having an employee come and say, I, I want to stay here, but I just want something different what does that look like that that is really empowering for the employee and for for, for myself in a HR capacity it's it's yeah it's everything um that means that I can find a solution and, and haven't you obviously have enough knowledge of all of the different roles within the organisation to develop people into those different roles as well. And I think that's, again, understanding before we go out to market what we offer in terms of roles and where we can put people within that. 
so, something that I've just sorry to to cut no, in that okay. um approaching your manager about options within a business you know if, if I was to think oh you know I want I want something different at Intertech but I'm not sure where I fit so I'll go if you approach your manager and say what else have you got for me you never know what's available you never know what's advertised what's not advertised what's coming up where the you know where some confidential projects might be coming in you know innovation it's just yeah reach out um do that first before you exit the business um, because you never know where your career will take you. It's such good advice for anyone that is, you know, and it's about fronting up as well, not only fronting up to your manager, but in the instance we talked about earlier, Michael, about fronting up when an opportunity comes, walking up to a boardroom you don't know and to meet a few people from an organisation if that opportunity presents itself. It's a bit of the say yes message, I think, in Madison there. I'm just going to turn um, to our audience briefly and online and just see if there are any questions. Does anyone have any questions they'd like to ask the panel? Anthony, do you want to just grab, I'll just grab the mic and pop down. Thanks, Carol. Um, just, just to pick up on a point that you made, Demetria, which is uh, the problem of employees, potential employees asking what else is out there. And for many, the answer is the resources sector and the big mm. dollars that come out of that. I'm just wondering what the panellists' view is in terms of how they see the resources sector, because obviously there's an economic benefit for most, if not many, uh, for most companies in, in WA for the resources sector, but equally they're a competitor often in terms of uh, when you're trying to, to source employees and even uh, that, that lure employees away. Michael talked about flexibility options, um, which might be an inducement for um, those sorts of employees, but but how, how do the panellists view the resources sector as a competitor or as a, as a friend? <laughs> or the golden handcuffs. <laughs> yeah, you don't mind that. Have a crack at that one. Sorry, Anthony. Um, yeah, Anthony, so I've, I've worked in the resources sector for 10 years before joining Geraldton Fisherman's Co-op. And so coming from that environment, I mean, from, from an, uh, uh, when, you, when you're looking for employees, they're definitely a competitor because they pay more than, than you know, we can afford to pay. And so I think, um, you know, you just got to be honest about that and, and realistic about that with your candidates. So, you know, the, the, the new uh, HR manager that we mentioned bringing on board before, you know, from the very first moment in the in the recruitment and onboarding process or even when we're just negotiating salaries we're very clear that you know we can't compete with with the resources sector um but we we highlighted the type of business we were and the other options that we had um you know where we said you get to, you get to be home every night we're not expecting you to travel you, you you've got that flexibility there are you know there's other things we can do in a non non um, salary way to sort of you know make the job more attractive so training through um, you know, cooperative schemes and, and and all the rest. So they're definitely a competitor. And I mean, we've seen, you know, we, we hire a lot of truck drivers and we've really struggled to get, um, you know, the, the number of truck drivers we need because they're getting paid twice as much to go and drive a, a truck up, up on a mine. Um, but, you know, there's this, it's it's cyclical. We, we, we see this, you know, the resources sector booms and everyone sort of goes that way. And then um, it sort of drops off and and, and they, they start to come back and look for the more um, family-friendly options or something a bit more local. Mm. And that comes a bit back to, I think, what uh, Jesse and Rosie were saying earlier around the unique selling point. And I think understanding where you differentiate yourself from the resource industry. And likewise, Michael, you know, I spent 
nearly 20 years in the resources sector. And I think it does offer a lot in terms of financial benefit, but it also means you have to stand at a barbecue and say you work in the resources sector. You know, and particularly with climate change and all of those things, um, you, long hours, lots of travel, high, high expectations about what you will do for the work and the money that you um, are on. And I think knowing what your organisation can offer that's different from that, be it, you know, ethical work, be it really strong commitment to community, be it, um, you know, that daily flexibility is really important. And no high vis. And no high vis. That's right. Life without a hard hat and boots. It's a whole new world. I still do. Every time I put my jacket on, think, thank God I'm not wearing my high vis. <laughs> Um, anyone else want to comment on comparisons? I mean, you were involved, Jesse, in both, um, both the resource sector and an employee that feeds into that. Yeah, I guess from from our side, yeah, we're part of the resources industry and a, a service to the resources industry. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, we don't have, you know, the operator um, salaries available either. We don't have those margins. So it, I, yes, you want to know what's in the industry and you want to know where your com competition is and, and the salaries out there but you still have to stay relevant to your industry. So, you know, if we look at our competitors in a service market, the same sort of laboratories and, and doing the same sort of work, we're competitive to those salaries and that's that's what matters. Um, we will, everyone can always get something more elsewhere. That doesn't mean it's the right more and it doesn't mean that it's going to add value to that individual. So I think you have to stay stay true to your, your business objectives, your values, your, your, all of those sorts of things and, and just run your own beat, um, you know, run to your own race because you'll always be looking at someone else and if it's not a viable business option, you're never going to get to that. So you can't offer the same. And if someone is only coming to you for financial reward, you also have to question whether that's the right person for your yeah. organisation. And that, that's okay. If that's the driver that's for that's employee, yeah. great. Not the right fit. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That's a really good point. Any other questions? Carl, did you want to ask anything? The great benefit of being in the room is not only do you get croissants, but you get to ask questions, Carl. Hello. Um, really enjoying your uh, words of wisdom and um, expanding ideas to try and um, recruit people. Um, we've been talking about the Eastern States and just how to go about recruiting to the Eastern States. I'm just looking at, you know, considering CCADs and Melbourne and, and Sydney and Brisbane. Um, so now the borders are open, yeah. Have you guys considered that and what ideas have you got for us? Do you think we'll stick with the local focus or will we start to outreach into the eastern states? I think it's, yeah, back to that spinning the plates. You have to look wherever the people are to fill mm. your vacancies. You know, as, as there's migrant workforces coming back in, you have to. You'll have to look everywhere. Um, the focus has to be local first. And again, financially, commercially, that's the best option. Um, but we also have to fill the amount of roles to the people we have in the state. So, you know, we, Intertech is looking at um, externally or, or outside of WA, of course, mm. to fill our vacancies. But that's part of our service offering that we've got vacancies across our business so internally would be the first pool that we look internally to relocate our internal teams um, and then we look at externally so external would be local and then external um, nationally so there's sort of a few phased approaches but you know as Rosie's mentioned how quickly you turn that around is is your key as well so you know there's all these outside um, I guess metrics or KPIs that you have to keep up with the communication um, one of the ways is really 
starting that network now. So even who you talk to today may not translate into an opportunity mm. um, for that person for another 12 months. But by then you should know if they're the right person for your role or not. So you have those warm pools as well internally and externally. Um, yeah, I think the way to do it is exactly the same way that we're doing it here is through the right networks and job active providers, through community and making sure that that's key in the areas that you want to recruit in or develop in further. Mm. Um, it's almost even more important, isn't it? If you absolutely. are looking into markets where you don't have that direct relationship with the community, you have to find organisations and stakeholders that do. And I guess that applies even to the Indigenous employment sector as well, doesn't Definitely. it? It's those lead-ins to those communities the, and the, the Eastern States is the same. The only thing with that is if you're starting that conversation, commit to it. Mm. Don't bother starting if you're not prepared to show up and deliver. Yeah. Don't don't dream it because you'll ruin those relationships. So, so the consistency and deliverables are essential wherever you are. That's at WA or, or East Coast. You can't link in with a community and say you're going to do all these wonderful things for them and walk away and do nothing because you, you won't get that back. It's such an important point and it's actually a lovely way to kind of round up a bit of our conversation and I think 100% if you're going down that path and you're building those relationships, you actually have to follow through on it. I think it's some great advice. Rosie, if you had to leave us with some just one or two key points, what would they be? Have hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, people are out there um, and it can be something as simple as making a few internal changes. Um, but really understanding as a business what you stand for, who you are, and um, you can attract from there. Sounds great. Dan, did you have some final words of wisdom you'd like to impart to the panel? Um, no, not, not really. I think it's been a really great conversation today, so thanks for having us in here. Um, yeah, it's an absolute labour shortage, and you've got to find people wherever you can and set them up for success. And if you're not taking care of them, you know, it's going to show. Yes, really great advice, yeah. And Michael, some no, rounding words of wisdom. You, you've covered it all off. Wonderful. I have really enjoyed the chat today too. And I think as a leader and a manager, it's really important to get that reminder um, when things are tough and when you have unusual roles that need filling or you've got um, spaces that require someone different to really look outside the box and look into your community and look into those relationships as your starting point even before you start to think about putting an ad up. It's quick and it's easy to put an ad up but if you want to create great teams and you want longer term success you've got to find the right people in the right places to put them into those chairs. So thank you all very, very much. Really appreciate it. To Anthony, um, to Kyle and to the others in the room, thank you for your questions and your interest. And to Chris, our amazing AV sound guy um, who brings us to you live every uh, month. Um, thanks again, Chris, for all your help and assistance. And we'll be stopping to have some coffee and some croissants. Um, for those of you at home, I hope your warm Milo's in this cold and wet day um, are serving you well. Thank you again so much. Thank you.